how well we can find, understand, and apply information to help us make health decisions affects many areas of our lives. Reading nutrition labels in the grocery store, following instructions on prescription bottles, being able to tell whether an article shared on social media by a high school acquaintance is accurate. These are just a few of the ways that health literacy can pop up for us day to day. Since October is Health Literacy Month, I'm joined by Dr. Heidi Brown from the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN and Jordan Spencer, a medical student at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, to learn more about health literacy. We talk about where to find accurate health information, resources for building health literacy skills, and how low health literacy exacerbates pre-existing health disparities. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins. You're listening to the Women's HealthCast. I am very pleased to welcome two guests to the Women's HealthCast. Today, we will be talking with Jordan Spencer, who is a medical student at the University of Arkansas, and Dr. Heidi Brown from the UW Department of OBGYN. Thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you for having us. October is Health Literacy Month, and I thought a great place to start would be to just get a solid definition of health literacy. When I say this, what do I mean? So that's a great question, Jackie, and I think you'll find the definition of health literacy is something that's kind of evolving even now, Um, but the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services defines it as the degree to which an individual can obtain, process, and understand basic health information and services necessary for making appropriate health decisions. So that's kind of like the baseline definition that I like to kind of operate off of, Um, but as I was doing, I've done a couple of projects um, doing research in health literacy. And um, one of the definitions that I really like is by the Institute of Medicine. Um, And they acknowledge that the degree to which you can do all of these things is actually affected by four major components. And so they talk about the cultural and conceptual knowledge that a person has, their oral literacy, um, so their speaking and listening skills, their print literacy, so their writing and reading skills, and their numeracy. So all of those things kind of combine together to make up a person's health literacy. And then even more recently, the Healthy People 2030 um, addressed this issue of organizational health literacy, which was something that was kind of new to me. So a person's health literacy can actually be affected by the organization or institution in which they're being asked to apply their health literacy. And so how well does that organization do at giving them the tools they need to find and understand and use health information? I'm really glad you mentioned the organizational aspect, especially. I think I want to talk a lot of, about that later. Um, but as a as a person and as a kind of a healthcare consumer, that's the side that I I work on or I live on. Um, why is health literacy important for me, like in my day to day life? How does my level of literacy or my low like lack of health literacy kind of affect my my life and my choices? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. Um, And I think whether we realize it or not, Jackie, we are all coming into contact with health information and making decisions that affect our health every single day. So one example, a simple example of that is, what are you eating? Are you on a special diet? And if you are, do you understand why and how that diet works? And if your diet requires you to read nutrition labels at the grocery store when you're shopping, do you feel comfortable doing that? 
Um, another example would be, um, what do you do if perhaps you or maybe your child gets a headache or a stomach ache? Do you know what over-the-counter medications you're going to get? If so, do you understand the dosing? Um, do you try some other remedy? How do you know if your symptoms are indicative of something more serious or life-threatening? Do you call someone? Do you go to the ED? Um, those are kind of like basic things that can happen on a day-to-day -day level that a person with low health literacy or high health literacy might handle very differently. Um, another example within the field of women's health is how are you choosing to practice or to not practice safe, safe sex in your relationships? Do you understand what safe sex means um, or why that's important? Um, and maybe the most important thing is when you come across anything medical in your day-to-day -day life, which we all do, like drug advertisements on the TV or perhaps a new virus causing a pandemic that's being talked about in the news, um, or a family member or a friend who just received a new medical diagnosis, or maybe you're experiencing new symptoms that you don't really understand yourself, the question is, where are you looking for your health information? Um, and do you feel comfortable and confident interpreting the things that you find um, or voicing or explaining your concerns? I'll add a little bit to that, Jackie, in terms of why health literacy is important to um, you as a healthcare consumer. Um, one of the things that we find as our health literacy improves is that we have more ability to take control of our own health. We can, we have more agency to make choices. When a doctor gives us options, we um, know how to interpret those options and we also know whether or not the doctor isn't giving us options if we have um, if we have health liter if we're highly health literate and we know where to look for information and we've been able to access some trustworthy information before that doctor's visit in fact yesterday I was seeing a patient um, in her 30s who had pelvic organ prolapse which is a common condition that I take care of um, and I talked to her about about two surgical options. I said the two surgeries that I think would be most reasonable for you are A and B. And um, I talked to her about the risks and benefits of both. And she said, and do you not do C? And I said, oh, actually, you know, I hadn't considered C for you, but that would be an option. Let me tell you more about that. Um, and by the time she left my office, she had scheduled surgery C, which was the operation that she had read about um, through like trusted information on the internet and advocated for. And if she hadn't had that health literacy coming into the encounter, she would have left my office being scheduled for a different operation because I offered her the two operations that I thought of first and perform most commonly. Um, so that's like a real world example so another example of a situation in which health literacy directly impacted patient care and a situation uh, where I was caring for a patient a few years ago was a situation where a patient had a procedure that could be done either in the operating room or in the emergency room. And the communication to me from the resident doctor who'd been talking with the patient and gotten to discuss the risks and benefits of the procedure and what exactly was going to happen um, based on their conversation 
the resident doctor believed that the patient wanted the procedure done in the emergency room. And when we started doing the procedure, the patient was very uncomfortable. And I said, listen, you know, I really think we should do this procedure in the operating room. You'll be so much more comfortable. And the patient hadn't even realized that those were the two options that had been offered to her and discussed with her because we'd been using the acronyms ER and OR, and the patient didn't know what those two things meant. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a very poignant example of how we think that we're telling a patient, and we think that we're giving a patient information, but that the information the patient is receiving is not the information we're attempting to convey. I feel like you did share some really strong, good examples of what strong individual health literacy can look like as we move through healthcare systems and navigate our own personal health. It looks like um, having the tools to be good advocates for ourselves, and it can look like uh, having the tools to understand different options that they're being communicated to us, to um, think critically about the options that we're being given. Um, what else? What else does strong health literacy look like in the practical level? Yeah, so I think having the tools is one part of it, right? But the other part is having the confidence to use those tools. So to me, strong health literacy, if we go back to that original definition um, that I I cited at the beginning, um, I think strong health literacy is the ability to confidently obtain and understand and use health information and services for making health decisions. And I stress that word confidently, um, one in part because there have been several studies that have shown that this question, how confident are you? filling out medical forms by yourself, which you may have come across before, um, is actually a really good indicator of someone's health literacy. Um, The possible responses to that question are extremely, quite a bit, somewhat, a little, not at all, um, with somewhat, a little, and not at all indicating someone might have inadequate health literacy. Um, Now, I think most people would agree that a person's health literacy is dependent on so much more than just their confidence in filling out medical forms, but I think the idea in that question is that a person who is able to report that they are extremely confident in filling out medical forms is also likely confident in their knowledge of their own health, their knowledge of healthcare in general, um, their ability to make decisions regarding their health. Um, And that's not to say that people with strong health literacy have to be healthcare experts, because they certainly do not. Um, But when when these people do have health questions, um, I think people with strong health literacy know exactly where to go to look for information, or at least who to ask, um, whether that's an online resource or a physician or a combination of the two, and they are confident in their ability to understand what information they find, or at least to formulate and communicate questions about that information, and then ultimately confident in their ability to make decisions based on the information they've gathered. Um, So strong health literacy is more than just the tools and the opportunity. It's the confidence to use those things. I think you just brought up an amazing point that I definitely want to ask about. Um, Thinking about where people do ask questions and do seek out information, um, our first stop usually is going to be the internet at this point. Um, We can very easily Google a set of symptoms or um, search for treatments or conditions. Uh, We kind of have this whole world of medical information at our fingertips. And not everything that we see online is going to be accurate or correct. Um, And there's just so much information. So as as healthcare consumers, um, how do we navigate the wide world of health info online and kind of filter down to 
accurate information or um, evidence-based information when there's so, so much to choose from? I think that's an excellent question as well. And Dr. Brown, you can probably shed a little bit more light than I can at this stage in my training. Um, But I actually was talking to the director um, of the Health Literacy Center at the University of Arkansas about this very question the other day, Um, because at this point in my training, I really approached health literacy from the perspective of the provider. You know, what can I do to change the way that I practice to better address my patient's health literacy? But I hadn't really thought so much about what can my patients be doing to kind of improve their health literacy and navigate all of this stuff and and help themselves. And so um, her name is Allison Cal. And she gave me some really great advice. Um, She said one of the things that she recommends to patients um, is also is actually Medline Plus Guide to Healthy Web Surfing. And it's this really simple kind of easy to read guide of things that you can look for when you're searching through information, health information on the internet. Um, Things like considering the quality of the source that you're looking at. Does it appear trustworthy? Do you recognize this source? Is it from the CDC? Um, Is the article citing medical research or are they just talking talking about personal opinions or experiences. Is this information current? Is it from recent years or is this maybe out of date information? Um, And those are just some simple tools that we may not be thinking of when we're, you know, Googling our first thing or scrolling through something on Facebook um, is what's the reliability of the source that I'm looking at. I agree with Jordan um, and the folks at the Health Literacy Center down at University of Arkansas. The Medline Plus website is a great resource. It's um, part of the National Institutes of Health. Uh, there's a national, a United States National Library of Medicine, and this is where um, Medline is also the website that we that physicians use when we're trying to access evidence-based information. Um, to guide our clinical management. The medlineplus.gov website is a resource for patients, and that resource provides trusted health information about a number of uh, different topics. In general, I encourage my patients to go to websites that I've recommended or that are um, related to or that have a that have .gov at the end of them, .gov. Um, I know that that's safe because that's the National Institutes of Health or that's the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So something I was um, thinking a lot about as I was kind of prepping for our conversation, I feel like I have noticed a couple barriers lately to health information and health literacy that I I kind of categorized in my head as newness and tabooness. So how much information or how how long has something been around that there's research and information available about it? And how comfortable are people discussing this area of health and healthcare? Um, So the big new example, as it is uh, the year 2020, um, has been uh, COVID-19, the new coronavirus uh, pandemic. So our understanding of the virus, of prevention, of treatment, of best practices has tra- changed a lot throughout the course of this year. And um, I think because of that, misinformation is incredibly abundant, right? There's a ton of information to choose from, and not all of it is um, supported by science, we'll say. So 
How does the newness of something like COVID-19 add challenges to staying literate and up-to-date on um, health information? Yeah, I think the example of COVID-19 is a great example because there has been so much information coming very quickly, changing very rapidly. And honestly, it's been difficult for all of us, even as healthcare professionals. Um, so I took a course on COVID-19 uh, back at uh, back in the spring at the end of my third year when I was in quarantine. One of the things the University of Arkansas offered us was this course, crash course on COVID-19. Um, but a lot of the information that we were taught even then has changed and evolved um, and is a lot different now. And so I think it is a huge challenge to stay on top of um, information that is so new and to filter out what's truth and what's um, maybe not as truthful. Um, there's a lot of information that we see on social media, and um, I, I'm sure we've all had instances where we said, well, I saw it on Facebook, and you know, it doesn't end up being true. <laughs> um, so I think we have to be very careful of filtering out where we're getting our information. Um, so the advice that I was given was just to pick a few uh, sources that I really trusted and to stay up to date on those um, and to kind of narrow where I got my information and, and filter out everything else. Um, but it is difficult. It's a huge challenge and you have to be very intentional about um, keeping yourself updated um, and seeking out new information for yourself, for sure. On the other hand, Less timely, but um, personally very important and interesting to me is this idea of um, tabooness of this isn't something that we talk about um, that can I feel like can lead to misinformation. So I'm thinking in particular of women's health in terms of sexual and reproductive health, menstruation, birth, um, Dr. Brown's expertise area of incontinence. Um, Sometimes I feel like there's a sense of uh, sort of, you know, this is this is an embarrassing topic. This is a shameful topic. This is something um, that polite people don't discuss. And I am curious how or if that kind of culture of tabooness can contribute to low comfort or low literacy in terms of sexual and reproductive health and women's health more broadly. Yeah, I think it absolutely can. Um, so we've been talking about health literacy as the ability to obtain and understand information to make health decisions, right? But it's very difficult to obtain information on a topic if you and the people around you who may have experienced something similar are too ashamed or embarrassed to talk about it. Um, and that is true of so many topics within women's health, many of which you just pointed out, Jackie. Um, and so a lot of the health literacy research that I've done, as Dr. Brown pointed out, has been within the field of urogynecology. And so in that process, I've been able to talk to many, many of these patients um, about their experiences with their various diagnoses. And a lot of their conditions um, are kind of taboo topics that we don't talk about very much, like prolapse and incontinence. Um, those are topics that a lot of women are ashamed about. And what that can do by not talking about these issues is it creates this sense of isolation. Um, and many of the patients that I talked with told me how relieved they were when they found out that they weren't the only one who had been dealing with this, um, that there were other women, a lot of women, even women that they knew who had had similar experiences. Um, and so they felt less alone and they were able to actually seek help. Um, and so I think it's really, whenever I talk to patients about these kind of issues, I always encourage them to kind of 
try to break the stigma if they can and, and bring up these topics with um, their daughters or their mothers or their friends. Um, because likely there are other women in their circle who have been dealing with similar things and just don't realize that they're not alone. Um, and I think communication is just so important in, um, in breaking that stigma so that these issues um, are more easy to talk about and more easy to bring up to your doctor. Um, so we can start you know, treatment sooner and give clarification and explanation sooner and reassurance sooner. Um, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge um, issue within our field, and I'm really glad that you brought it up. I think, thank you so much for that question, Jackie. I think the other thing um, when we're thinking about taboo topics is uh, the fact that the internet is so much easier um, than asking somebody face-to-face about something embarrassing, uh, which means that our patients may turn first to the internet for information about these stigmatized conditions. Um, and in fact, uh, one, of the, one of the conditions I take care of is um, accidental bowel leakage or um, bowel incontinence. Um, And when we started to do some research a few years ago to understand how patients seek information, we found that the most commonly Googled term was actually leaky butt, which is something that I had never asked a patient about. Um, But that's what patients were typing into the Google search bar. Um, And so when I learned that, I learned that I have to ask my patients any problems with leaking from your bottom, leaking from your butt. And then that opens the door, um, to talk about the talk about the condition in a situation uh, where a provider knows the medical terms and can help direct the patient to uh, sources of information that use the medical terms that the people who sort of proctor health information would use in um, writing up materials, which also kind of brings us back to your earlier comment about the importance of healthcare organizations and healthcare providers and um, other institutions trying to uh, develop uh, health information for consumers, making sure that we use language that is accessible to the folks who are trying to access it. Um, and again, I go back to the medlineplus.gov website where you can type in bowel and type in, type in leakage and you can land very quickly on the information pages from the NIDDK, which is the branch of NIH that uh, does the, that provides the vetted information about bowel incontinence and bladder incontinence. So I think um, going back, if, if listeners take home one thing, it's that medlineplus.gov is a great place to start for trusted health information. Um, and also that it's a great place to learn the language that your healthcare provider might use. I'd like to ask a little bit more about kind of the the responsibility or the, I don't know, maybe responsibility is not quite the right word, but um, how, how health professionals can help meet um, patients and healthcare consumers kind of where they are and there may be a slight role in like translating some Okay, here's how I'm going to ask this. It might not be perfect, but um, I'm thinking about, you know, medical journals. Those are held up, especially, you know, the the good, the peer-reviewed journals. They're held up as sort of like this gold standard of research and understanding. And 
I'm four years into a job where part of what I do is read journal articles and try to translate them. And it is difficult. It can be extremely difficult to understand um, if, if that's not a field or a, an area where you spend all your time. It's, I, I struggle with trying to figure out how to summarize research methods and things like that. And then also to understand what, like, the differences between types of study and how does that affect their quality. Um, and I guess I'm just wondering, it's very hard sometimes to understand research and medical speak and scientific speak. Um, how can you all help us understand it a little better? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And um, I'm currently on the editorial board of uh, Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery, which is a journal that um, is widely respected in urogynecology. Um, and we've been spending a lot of time thinking about things like visual abstracts, which convey information um, with pictures and figures and colors um, with fewer words. And we're also looking at things like tutorials where we're posting on social media key findings from studies and posting those key findings in ways that encourage followers to interact with the material. For example, polls, questions, um, little colorful cartoons. Um, so I think the those of us on the other side who are writing the complex scientific articles and reviewing and deciding on publication of those complex articles are also trying to focus on how we can distill content into ways that is more to ways that are more palatable for healthcare consumers. There is also um, within the NIH there's an office of disease prevention and health promotion that has a great checklist for health literacy online strategies. Um, and they have sort of a few bullet points of when we're putting health information online, when we're summarizing um, journal articles or scientific study findings, um, what we want to do is communicate actionable content. So what, what can we do with these findings? Displaying content clearly, putting the most important stuff first, using bullet points, um, not having dense text. Um, organizing content and simplifying navigation so that people don't need to click 15 places to see the final message. Engaging users using interactive um, techniques, just like we'd all rather do something interactive than be lectured at. Um, and then test our, test our materials with users with limited literacy. Um, and or limited health literacy, which includes numeracy and oral or verbal um, literacy. And, and, you know, make sure that the folks that we're trying to communicate the information to are understanding it the same way, the way that we intend for it to be understood. So I think there are lots of um, tools out there to help us do better at communicating research findings and scientific studies to a broader audience, um, and we're just catching up in, um, in as scientific researchers to understand how important it is to disseminate our research findings so that they can be broadly implemented sooner. 
Um, and I think the other component is um, kind of a conversational piece. Uh, one of the other projects that we did, um, we found that women with low health literacy um, actually prefer conversations as opposed to brochures or pictures when they're receiving information about like a new treatment um, or procedure that they may undergo. And so that kind of um, taught me that patients with different levels of health literacy might prefer to receive information in different ways. And so I, as a provider, need to be aware um, that the way I'm communicating with my patient might not be the way that they best receive information. And so why don't I just ask them about that, talk to them about that, make sure that I'm meeting them where they are. Um, and then also just I think it's so important to create an environment where your patients feel comfortable asking questions and voicing concerns. Um, one thing that Allison Caballero, who I mentioned earlier, told me the other day was she said, Jordan, communication is a two-way street and your patients need to know that they are conveying just as much health information as you are. And they're, the way that they report their symptoms to you, the things that they tell you, the things that they think may be going on, all of that is important. Um, and your patients need to know that you want to know that. Um, and so I, I thought that was um, extremely important as well. So listening to both of your answers, um, I feel like this is kind of an equity conversation as well. And I am, I am curious how levels of health literacy can um, affect or play into some health disparities that we see in our, definitely in our state and um, in the rest of our country. Um, well, one of the things that we found um, in the study that I mentioned when we were kind of evaluating the health literacy um, of a large sample of patients at our urogynecology clinic in Little Rock, um, we found that um, patients who had lower education uh, were more likely to be at risk for limited health literacy. And so low education um, factors into race, factors into economic disparities, um, all of that is kind of tied together. And so I think we need to be aware um, that our patients of different uh, racial backgrounds and different socioeconomic backgrounds um, may be at higher risk of limited health literacy. Absolutely. I think this is a I'm so glad that you brought up the question of equity because I think it, you shouldn't talk about health literacy without talking about health equity. Um, it's 100% true that health literacy and limited health literacy contributes to persisting um, disparities in health outcomes. Um, and it's also true that we, um, in, in the research, I've done a fair bit of research around how to reach women with information about the prevalence of incontinence and how treatable it is and how preventable it is so that women can um, seek care sooner or access preventive strategies, simple changes that we can make to how we eat and drink and doing pelvic floor muscle exercises or Kegels to prevent uh, development of incontinence or prolapse symptoms. So I've done a fair bit of work looking at how do we reach women with information about these, about pelvic floor disorders, these stigmatized disorders. Um, and I've partnered with an existing health survey called the Survey of the Health of Wisconsin. And what we found, we've done a couple of different studies where we've disseminated information about bladder health promotion to all the women who've participated in this 
state-based population health survey. Um, and then we're able, because we have information about these women, uh, who these women are, who are participants in this bigger health survey, we can characterize the women who do and don't engage with bladder health promotion. And what we find is that it's the women who have um, lower socioeconomic status, women of color, women in urban areas, women who are working more jobs, are the women who uh, don't access the bladder health materials. Um, and so when we are, when we're developing bladder health promotion materials with the folks who engage with bladder health materials or who engage with bladder health promotion, we're actually in, we're, and we think that we're engaging the we're engaging the target population and getting their input on the materials, but we're actually missing the most vulnerable people. And the people with whom we're engaging are the same people who probably would have the agency um, to seek care for their incontinence if they develop symptoms. And so by virtue of being able to partner with this health survey where we where we knew a lot about all women, we were able to identify that our outreach our outreach and our outreach specifically to develop health promotion materials misses those most vulnerable folks. So we need to prioritize as um in health communication, we need to prioritize engaging with the folks who don't pick up the phone, who don't answer the email, um, and going to them where they are to understand, um, if not understanding their barriers to accessing health promotion information, at least understanding the places where they might be uh, willing to, or able to, is a better word, we might be able to access health promotion materials. With everything that we've just discussed, then, the importance of strong health literacy, the barriers to uh, individuals gaining health literacy, the importance of finding kind of a middle ground and working with our scientists and our healthcare providers to um, develop communication tools and strategies that meet us as consumers kind of where we're at. Um, what are your top tips or recommendations of a place to start to start? to build and strengthen my health literacy skills? I think um, one thing is kind of, we've touched on it already, is just reevaluating where you're getting your health information um, and making sure that the sources that you're using um, are reliable, are up to date, um, making sure, like talking to your provider. Um, Dr. Brown recommends a lot of um, specific things to her patients. So talking to your provider about websites um, or resources that they would recommend that you look at to, um, to kind of expand your health knowledge. Um, and then I think the other thing, which we've also talked about a little bit, is just building your confidence and conveying your health information. Um, I think one of the best ways that our patients can improve their health literacy is just being confident about their health and um, being confident in communicating their concerns, their questions, their thoughts, their ideas. Um, and that, I mean, that will go so, so, so far. Uh, 
um, not to sound like a broken clock, but if you go back to medlineplus.gov, um, there's a topic under health topics. One of the topics is patient rights. And if you click on the link, um, the, all of the medlineplus.gov uh, pages sort of have the same layout, which is kind of nice because the more you, the more time you spend on the site, the more you'll um, get familiar with where to find things. But there's a little summary at the beginning, um, and then there's a, an area called Start Here that has bullets. And one of the most helpful bullets is questions to ask your doctor, um, which has sort of a little, it's put together by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, a HRQ, which is another trusted source, and it has a little information about questions to ask your doctor. Your doctor wants your questions. There are some videos there, um, which is helpful for folks who might not be able to read. Um, and that's also a good point that we didn't really touch on during um, during our earlier conversation, but delivering information in ways other than just written materials for patients to review after a visit is a good way for um, us as healthcare providers to make sure that we're delivering information because not all of us are, not all of us absorb information most effectively by reading. In fact, we probably all absorb information more effectively if we're watching a video where we're both seeing and hearing um, and it ideally even interacting with the materials. Um, also on that medlineplus.gov um, page on patient rights, there's a bullet point about getting a second opinion before surgery, which is another, um, which just is a guide revised by the Department of Health and Human Services, a guide about when you're going to have surgery, when, when should you get a second opinion? And the answer is almost always, how do you find a doctor for a second opinion? What should I do before I get a second opinion? So if if someone is looking to build her health literacy, a great place to start is reviewing the resources on medlineplus.gov, um, specifically the topic on patient rights, um, because these really are our rights to be informed healthcare consumers. Um, and I know as a as a physician, if a patient asks me for a second opinion, I'm thrilled because that means she's taking this seriously um, and she's an agent of her own health care. And truly, that's what I want because my interaction with the patient is a lot less um, important to her overall health than her decisions, behaviors, and choices and sort of environment over her life course. So um, building health literacy is... Um, as Jordan has mentioned a couple of times, is also about building self-advocacy um, skills and the patient rights topic is a great place to do that. One thing that I would also add that we haven't touched on yet, and I, I want to mention for the sake of my grandparents, if anyone, um, is the importance of bringing someone with you to your appointments, if that makes you feel more comfortable, if that makes you feel more confident, if you feel like um, that would help you understand information and make sure that you don't miss important information, having someone with you. I think that is very acceptable and, and really important to mention. Uh, both of my grandparents are highly educated, um, college uh, educated individuals, um, but they're both in their 80s, and they both 
um, are not super educated in the realms of medicine. Um, and so having my mom or my aunt come with them to their appointments is so important for them to feel um, like they truly understand the care that they're receiving um, and have made sure that their questions and concerns were voiced because my aunt and my mom make sure to do that for them. Um, and so I think that's, that's a really good resource that we can encourage our, our patients to take advantage of as well, is if there's someone you want to bring with you, by all means, bring them with you. And I know in the times of COVID, that's been kind of difficult. Um, and I just spent a month on gynecology oncology, and we have a lot of older women um, who really like to have their daughters or sons with them. And so um, FaceTime has been a, a huge player in our clinics recently, and patients um, allowing their daughters and sons to FaceTime into appointments has been um, a really big part of the clinic visits. So I thought that was kind of important to throw in as well. That's an excellent point. I'll just add that with um, visitor restrictions related to COVID-19, where many of our patients aren't allowed to have um, a visitor accompany them to the clinic, um, and not all not all patients have iPhones, but we often are doing a telephone call during the clinic visit and just putting it on speakerphone so that the patient's family member can at least hear what's going on. Um, and that's, I always recommend that my patients bring a second pair of ears and eyes to any preoperative appointment because there's so much information um, being dumped at patients during a preoperative visit. Um, and it's good. It's nice to have another person there who can both listen and also advocate for you and ask the questions that you may be forgetting to ask. And writing a list ahead of your doctor's appointment is another practice that is helpful. If you write a list of the things you want to discuss during the healthcare encounter, you're more likely to bring them up. This has been the Women's Health Cast. I am so happy to have been joined by Jordan Spencer from the University of Arkansas Medical School and Dr. Heidi Brown from our Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Thank you both so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure as always, Jackie. Thanks so much for having me on. Stay safe out there. November is Bladder Health Month. Join us on our next episode to learn about bladder health and pelvic floor disorders with UW Health nurse practitioner Angie Sargent. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what women's health issues you'd like to learn about. Thanks for listening.